Hi, I'm Colm O'Sullivan, and this is the Policy Options Podcast, powered by the Institute for Research on Public Policy. In the last few years, we have seen massive disruptions in Canada's labour market. Not only are we in the midst of a changing economy, but the pandemic shook our labour market to the core. Factors like economic downturn, shutdowns, and a general disincentive for people to leave the house pushed people out of some jobs, made some jobs desperate for workers to fill them, and made other types of employment extremely insecure. The ability to overcome and adapt to a changing labour market must be a key point in how we build back better. And part of being resilient to these changes means that we have to implement systems and tools that make it easy and accessible for individuals who have been laid off or lost their jobs to quickly identify and take advantage of emerging employment opportunities that suits their lives and their needs. Today, I'll be speaking with Matthias Oshinsky. Matthias is the founder and CEO of Belongonomics and a member of the teaching faculty at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. I'll be speaking with Matthias about a fascinating new study that he, as well as Tan Yen, an undergraduate student in computer science and engineering at MIT, conducted with the IRPP. They devised a way to use algorithms to look at a person's skill set, suggest potential jobs based on those skills, and provide a path for the individual to get that job. Well, Matthias, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Now, we're going to be discussing your recent study with the IRPP, but before we really dig in, I, I think we should set the stage for what the current trends are right now that are you know, impacting the Canadian labor market. Could you give a bit of an overview? Yeah, that's a good question, and I think it's a good start because it flows nicely into the, the motivation for, for this work. So I think you know the pandemic is the, the most immediate impact on the labor market right now, the, the biggest disruption at the moment. And in the beginning, it kind of affected us all. But when you look at the numbers right now, so how certain industries and occupations coming out of the pandemic, those that are still struggling are a lot of service industries where physical proximity is in requirements like accommodation, food services is a big one here, retail to some extent. And then a lot of those services that deal with like office space, like business building and support services has still, I think when I last checked, it was still below the level that it was prior to the, to the pandemic. And when you look in the occupations themselves like who is in those occupations is a lot of women racialized canadians and youth that are mostly affected by by these and there was a harshest effect by, by the pandemic itself and then on top of the pandemic and even prior to the pandemic we have some what you know economists call structural changes like changes that really change uh, or affect this the skill requirements in the labor market and one of them is that canada like many oecd countries has an aging population which basically means that I think the, the latest uh, forecast is by 2036. Uh, so currently we have like four people in the labor force supporting one person not in the labor force. And by 2036, this will be below three, the ratio. So my prediction is that it will likely affect us in two ways in aging population. One is we will probably have you know longer working lives, which also means because skill requirements change that we need to implement better tools for lifelong learning, uh, reskilling, upskilling people as they have to work longer. And then also the second impact of an aging workforce is that the demand composition changes. So what, you know, the consumption patterns, like an elderly population, or if a largely elderly population consumes different goods and services from a younger generation. So you can imagine probably more health uh, services, more uh, personal care, 
services and maybe moving away from durable manufacturing goods or something uh, like that. So that that's that will definitely change, you know, how we produce and what we produce because based on the changing consumption patterns. And then the, the biggest two trends uh, I think uh, that are changing skill requirements uh, rapidly. One is automation digitization, and there's some indication for the US that uh, the pandemic has accelerated the adoption of digital technologies and, you know, that's rapidly changing skill requirements. In Canada, the, the evidence is a little mixed. Some studies find that it actually stalled uh, the adoption of te technologies during the pandemic. Some studies find that it accelerated. So there's a mixed picture. But where the consensus is, is that once the pandemic is over and we're coming out of this into the recovery phase, there will be likely a faster pace of adoption of digital technologies. And that means also then changing skill requirements at a faster pace. And the final one is, and I'm doing some studies on this right now as well, is the need to move from a carbon-based economy to a more sustainable economy, you know, as we as countries want to meet their climate change goals. And there's some indication that, that the impact from this move from a carbon-based economy to a more sustainable economy is very similar to that of automation and digitization in the sense that it's skill bias, which means that it favors certain skills over others uh, and certain skills meaning you know, abstract thinking skills, more technical skills, what economists call higher skills versus medium skills, and uh, the, the direction is very similar. And so I think these trends taken together, uh, what we have is basically a very <laughs> great need for retraining some of the workforce, upskilling some of the workforce, and taking some friction out of these uh, changes to help people move into more viable jobs that have, you know, a better future, basically. Now, all of these different forces impacting the labor market are, are pushing people out of some jobs and into others. And you actually compare where we are right now with the position that Canada was in in the 1990s. But you say that we should avoid some of the same mistakes that we made in that period. Can can you explain what you mean by that? We kind of echo a report that was done by TD Economics on, I think they looked into the energy sector and, you know, the, the change that is coming there because of the decarbonization that we need. And what, what happened in the 1990s was it was largely, the impact was largely on manufacturing in the 80s and 90s when, you know, we opened our borders, we had globalization, and the, the biggest change came then when China joined the WTO in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so what we've seen then is basically that uh, a lot of the middle-skilled jobs were outsourced to emerging markets, in, mainly in Asia. And uh, what some economists call here, what we got was, was an hourglass economy. So we had like people with higher skills and people with lower skill left, but very little in the, in the middle. Uh, those typical middle-class jobs that, you know, that sustained you, maybe my parents' generation or my grandparents' generation, and those were gone. In Canada, the, the impact was a little muted because people could move into the resources sector. In, in the States, it was much a much harsher impact on entire regions. Uh, one of my favorite economists, uh, David Autor at MIT, he called it the China shock, uh, basically, that happened to a number of regions in the United States. But even in Canada, even though uh, the, the polarization that happened wasn't as pronounced as in the US, there's still studies that show that people moved into very ill-fitting jobs that really didn't fill the skills profiles well. And what I mean by, you know, avoiding the same mistakes, uh, when econ I mean, I'm, I'm an economist and I definitely, I'm in, I'm in favor of free trade, I'm in favor of open borders, but, you know, it's not, not enough to say globalization will benefit us all because it leads to higher growth rates, but it's also, the question is, how are the gains distributed? And when you look at, into Canada, the United States, and some European countries over the last 40 years, the gains from this 
openness and, and globalization have been fairly unevenly distributed. So the, the, the majority went to the top 10%, top 1%. And I believe if we want to take people with us, uh, you know, in, in, because we need to do something against climate change, we need to decarbonize, we need innovation, which also need, means we need technological progress. But I think uh, you don't get the acceptance of a population that feels that they're being left behind. And uh, I think if we, we have the tools, we have the, the policy means to say, you know, uh, let's help those people navigate this disruption that is coming and not saying like, well, you know, we will all be better off because we ha will have more innovation. Uh, that's not good enough. Like we really need to be more proactive in uh, supporting these people. And this is one of the, the biggest, the bigger visions behind this tool that we try to develop or these, the set of tools to say, what can we do to better equip people to navigate this disruption that's happening or, or the, the multiple disruptions right now that are happening basically. So, and I think this is the biggest mistake that we that we did in the 1990s and early 2000s that we kind of left people alone with this, you know, but just saying, well, you know, we'll all profit from globalization, but then if the gains are not felt by certain groups, you get the populist backlash that we also, that we've seen in many countries actually over the last six, seven years. So taking in the current labor market trends that are that are impacting the economy and the lessons that we learned from the 1990s, you set out on a project that, that I think is quite interesting. Could you tell me about the project? Yeah, so what, what we're trying to do is to kind of help, help people where they are now to say like, okay, if you're in a job right now that's kind of affected by automation or by decarbonization, or even by the pandemic, you know, what are alternative uh, occupations that you could move into given your current set of competencies and skills? And so we, we kind of, uh, like many others uh, in this field, we believe that it's better to focus on skills and not credentials because credentials and, you know, your certificate that you did are not the best indicator for what you should be doing in life, but uh, it's rather your skills. And also credentials don't take account for, like, let's say you've been doing a job for the last five, six years. There's a lot of training on the job, like lots of skills that people pick up that are not tied to your credential. So, and I think so. If you focus on skills and competencies rather than credentials, then you know we have a better way of saying matching people into jobs that really fit their current skill set and interests. Uh, and yeah, there's some research that actually shows jobs that match people's competencies and skills make them more fulfilled and make them more productive in their jobs. So this is kind of what we're trying to do. Granted, uh, this is not super new because there are some tools out there that, you know, have uh, in the last four years, I would say there was kind of a bit of a development on that front. But in my view, what always is missing from, from most of these is uh, you kind of leave the people there. So you say, you know, uh, I don't know, you're in retail right now, and here are 10 jobs that you could do based on your uh, skill set. But then the question is always, so what's the next step? Because in some jobs, you might be able to say, okay, I can move there directly because I have like all the skill requirements for this, for this new target job, as we call it in our in our paper. But in many cases, there will be instances where you maybe lack, where you might lack one or two crucial skills, uh, and you need to get some training before you can make this move and so for me this was always a crucial point to say like uh, so what's the missing piece like what's the skills gap that you need that you might have to fill to make this move and so we developed a second algorithm to say like that helps us determine you know what are maybe three or four missing key missing skills or core missing skills that you might have to acquire before you make this change and then that's kind of adding to the piece of the puzzle. Again, you know, helping people navigate this transition in a proper way is to say, is really to give them all the information they need to then 
make this transition properly, uh, so to speak. So with the study that you've just published with the IRPP, you take the various jobs and skills that people have learned through their employment and, and run it through an algorithm which spits out a target job that they are well suited for. And, you know, to me, this this sounds a bit like sci-fi. So, I mean, you'll have to explain it to me. How does this work? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I'll, I'll try to be too technical about it, but there's basically a database that the uh, U.S. Department of Labor has been funding for over 20 years now. And what they do is pretty brilliant, actually, is they take all the occupations in the economy and they kind of dissect them by different dimensions. So they have, you know, what they've in, in their ability, knowledge, uh, skills, which is kind of usually called the competencies of a person. And then they have interests in there, uh, like because some jobs are more artistic, some jobs are more technical. And so what does it say about your interests when you hold a certain uh, occupation? I think there's nine dimensions in, the, in all. What we've done is like we actually uh, tested our algorithm against actual job changes that people have been doing over the last several years to kind of measure which of these dimensions are the most important when it comes to, you know, people moving from job A to job B. And these dimensions are different than skills, correct? Skill is one dimension. And then there's uh, other dimensions are basically abilities, knowledge, uh, which are these three taken together would be your competencies. And then there's other dimensions that kind of describe the job. So one is work activities, like, you know, is, is it a job where you input data or think creatively is, is, an, is an example. And another dimension would be interest because we included interest because we want to make sure if you just, let's say, you know, you just choose skills, uh, then you kind of say, okay, you have a high skill overlap with your current job. And we can compare this to all other jobs that are out there and say, where do you have your highest overlap in skills uh, from your current job to any other job that exists? And then we recommend you the ones that have the highest overlap. But if you include more dimensions, then you can get a better targeting in terms of uh, saying, you know, if the work activities are very similar, if the interests are very similar. And uh, so what we wanted to achieve is to say, you know, what's the best match? Uh, so which, which dimensions are the most important uh, to use? And we included interest because we thought we also want to, when we recommend jobs to people, we want to make sure that it aligns with your interests roughly. And uh, what we also do is because we want to make sure that people don't take a job that is lower paid, we also include a filter on wages. So that's kind of an additional feature of the algorithm where we say we only recommend jobs that have where the pay is at least as much as your current occupation or more. And we only include jobs that have a positive growth outlook. So because, uh, you know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics here in the States or in Canada, Statistics Canada, they, they have 10-year forecast for occupations, you know, if will they decline or will they grow? And so you can include this in the algorithm and then kind of exclude occupations where you know they will likely decline over the next 10 years because then you don't want to send people into a job that where they, uh, I don't know, three years from now, they have to look for another one or something. So this is the kind of the first part of what we call the proximity algorithm to say, like, what's the best match given your competencies and interests, so to speak, and then apply this additional filter for the wage and the, the outlook. You know, and I, I think that's super impressive on its own. Like, not only does this algorithm tell you what job is best suited for you, but you've actually gone and taken it further and added a second algorithm that then identifies a skill gap that you need to fill in order to transition, you know, effectively into your new target job. Could you tell me more about that? That's kind of, for me, the missing piece in, in many tools that are out there. There's some, you know, where they give you job recommendations, but then I always wondered if, if I used those tools and somebody told me, okay, you can become 
I don't know, you're an economist now and you can become whatever. Uh, then the question for me is like, so yeah, what what's next for me? Like, how do I get there? And so uh, the first step for me is basically then to say like, so what are the missing skills that you might have? So what what's what's the skills gap and how do you fill this? And the way we do this is is a tool or an algorithm that exists uh, for mainly in international economics where you kind of try to kind of establish the, the comparative advantage of a country in producing certain goods or services. And, and you can apply this to skills or occupations in a sense, which which skills dominate in a certain occupation. So, you know, like if you say you're, I don't know, an actuary, mathematics will be really high for actuaries because, you know, it's, it's very highly used in, in that occupation. And so you can kind of determine which skills in certain occupations are more highly used or more intensively used in certain occupations compared to all others. And then when you compare this with your current job and the other jobs that we maybe recommend you, we can say, okay, which of these are you currently missing? Like which stand out in the new ones or which are very intensively used in the new ones that are not currently used in your occupation? And those are the ones that we can then say, okay, you need some retraining for this or you need some training on this on these skills. And this is for me the the next logical step. And if I just can add to this, the, the next link would be to then advise you where to get the training. And that's kind of what Tony Bonin from LMIC and I did last year in an IRPV paper where you kind of say like, okay, you know, how to design a training database because unfortunately that's still missing. So, but this would be the, the next key step where we can link your skills gap to existing training opportunities and, and then have like a, a really tailored recommendation for you to say, okay, you're missing this and this is where you can go and get it. And so this is kind of the, this would be the, the ultimate tool then to, if, if we have all this together. And I think a really interesting part about these algorithms is that, you know, you didn't just sit at home and say like, oh, this is how much uh, math a cashier uses versus an actuary, right? You actually used a data set from the United States called ONET. And this was actually a strategic move on your part to use this data set because, you know, one, it's really high quality, but two, it's also public and, and used by researchers and academics. So could you tell me why you chose this data and, and why it's important that it's public? Uh, yeah, so it's probably the most widely used for this type of research at the moment because it's been there for so long and it's it's really, you know, well established. And what they've done is basically they kind of disaggregated occupations by these different dimensions. You know, what the skills are, the competencies are, and some other some other uh, dimensions that they include there. And they make most of it measurable. So they you know they, they assign a number to uh, what's the level of math that's used and what's the importance of, of math. So. Uh, just as an example, if you have actuaries and physicists, so both math is really important. So it gets a high number in both. But then what ONA does is also it includes a score for level. So for physicists, it would be a higher level because they use more abstract math uh, than actuaries. Um, and so you can kind of get to a really great level of granularity in terms of uh, saying, you know, what's the next best fit for you because you have all this information in there. And the, the information is collected from two sides. One is uh, current job holders who kind of, you know, they, they describe the tasks that they're doing and the knowledge that they need to have and uh, to in order to do this properly. And then you have subject matter experts assigning values to certain uh, to certain dimensions. And those subject matter experts are usually chosen by professional organizations and educational uh, institutions that have knowledge in this area or knowledge in these occupations. Uh, so it's it's a very well-designed database. I think the, the EU has come out with one a couple of years ago that's, from what I've heard, it's, it's even more detailed. 
but since Onet has been around for so long, it's it's the, the most widely used. The only downside is when you apply this to Canadian jobs, you always have to kind of translate it to Canadian occupations. And there's some some occupations that exist in Canada that is, don't exist in the US and vice versa. So depending on what kind of, you know, if you want to call it translation you use uh, from American occupations to, to Canadian occupations, you get different results. So the ideal would be, and I, I heard that um, ESTC is working on a, on a Canadian-owned version, so to speak, and this would be great because then for any Canadian tools that we need to develop, um, having a proper Canadian classification system would be would be the most ideal because then you can really you know include jobs properly and you don't get into these translation issues, if you want to call it this. And so once you created these data sets to create these algorithms, you went ahead and tested them on a few jobs that are at risk of automation and, you know, throughout the pandemic were at a high risk of viral exposure. So could you tell me about what you learned from testing the algorithms on these occupations? Yeah. So the reason why we did that is basically we thought, you know, who is in immediate need of help? And the most vulnerable are basically those who have a high risk of transmission, of getting sick with a virus. And a high risk of automation, like their job being at risk of automation or being digitized. And so we kind of uh, identified three uh, occupations that have a high joint risk of of this. Um, And what we found interesting is it's exactly in line with, uh, you know, the StatScan finding about who were the most vulnerable to the pandemic to begin with, because it was those three occupations are, you know, predominantly women, youth and racialized Canadians. So it kind of confirms that they are really in the biggest need of support and policy support and help. And yeah, so we kind of wanted to illustrate how these algorithms work in terms of like, you know, what what are viable uh, occupations that people in these occupations could transition into? And then what are the skills gaps between those jobs that they currently hold and uh, where they can go? Yeah, so what... What those jobs in common, apart from the fact that they, you know, that they're predominantly youth, racialized Canadian women, it's also that they're lower paid than the average jobs. So I think there's a lot of characteristics where it kind of signals that vulnerabilities there are really high, and we kind of need to make sure that we help those people and more immediately maybe than than some others. And I think some of the tools that we think can be developed using our algorithm and, and maybe build into existing labor market tools is uh, could be a good first good first step in you know helping them making this transition and one of the jobs that you looked at was was a cashier right yes. and the algorithm suggested that the cashier could become a product demonstrator and so how did you realize that the jump from a job as a cashier to the target job as a product demonstrator was feasible yeah. so when we took the joint risk uh, so you know a risk of viral transmission plus uh, the risk of, of automation. Cashiers was one of the highest that came out there. And then we applied this proximity algorithm where we say like, okay, when you compare the owned dimensions, uh, you know, what people that are currently in a cashier's occupation, what they need in terms of skills and competencies and product demonstrators, there's the highest overlap in terms of skills and competencies. So the issue is always with, you know, do I want a fast transition or can do people have a longer time to transition into jobs where they might have, you know, a larger skills gap and they need the, re- the retraining effort is, is really high. So uh, so what we kind of recommended first was like, you know, just working on the assumption that people might need a more immediate transition, then this would be the highest overlap would be to move into this the product demonstrator uh, occupation because this would be the least amount of retraining required because you could move pretty immediately. But you know, we also make it clear in the paper that uh, one. 
key difference between the three occupations that we identified, one was administrative assistants, one was cashiers, and one was retail salespeople. Uh, cashiers and retail salespeople have a predominant younger workforce than the average workforce. And administrative assistants, the, the median age is slightly higher than the median age in the total workforce. So, you know, when I work on this assumption that may, maybe people who are younger can take a little more time for retraining and then they might say, well, I'm okay with taking a job that is not so well aligned with my current skills because I actually, I'm still young enough to get the, get, get some more retraining. And people who are maybe in an older age cohort, uh, they might be in need of a, of a faster transition and they might need one of those that are you know, the, the top one at the, or the top two that we recommend based on the highest overlap between the skills and competencies, basically. You know, something else I found really interesting about this project was that, you know, there's this idea that if you want to become successful in today's world, you need, you know, the four C's and they are collaboration, cooperation, critical thinking and coding. But when I think of a mother who's, you know, just lost her job, I don't think that her first thought would be to go and learn coding, right? And so, you know, this project in, in the algorithms push back against this idea and say, no, you can use your existing skills. So can you talk about why that's beneficial? I mean, critical thinking, you know, I'm, I'm all in favor. I'm, my, I'm German, so Immanuel Kant is, is one of my favorite philosophers uh, and had quite a big influence on myself. But I think there's two approaches to getting people into new jobs. One is to look at what the labor market currently currently demands, uh, and then to say like everybody needs to become a Python programmer or something, uh, or you can say okay, let's pick up people where they are now, like with their individual circumstances, uh, their individual needs, and their current skill sets. And I think what we do with our algorithm is actually precisely that that we we target it better to the individual person. First of all, I also think it might be misguided to say everybody needs to become a python programmer because god knows in three years or five years a lot of what python programmers do now might be completely automated so even that, that profile will change will likely change uh, and so i think it's better to say you know look at the individual and their specific requirements their specific needs and the current skill sets and abilities and, and competencies and I, I think our algorithm allows for targeting this better to uh, to each individual so which i think is better because it doesn't come from the demand side so to speak what does the labor market demand now and everybody needs to go there but it comes more from helping the individual navigate this based on their own different circumstances now i just think this is really the coolest project and you know on its own it has a lot of potential to to help a lot of people but there's also a policy application for this as well right could you talk about that I mean, there's, some countries have already started this, like I think Singapore has developed, there's actually, you know, a government run effort to develop a, non, a one-stop shop where you say like, okay, I'll do a skills test and then I get recommendations and it helps me navigate this. Uh, and I think it needs to, since it is, this is a public policy effort, so it, it needs a lot of government coordination, government support to build uh, tools. And I, I can see two, the two biggest distinctions some people will be comfortable using this on their own. Like, let's say, you know, you build this in, into a tool that does exactly the three things that I described earlier, where you say, like, it recommends your job, it identifies the skills gap, and then if need be, it also advises you on where to get the training that you need before you can then make the transition. So uh, there's certainly some people who are comfortable using this by themselves to just get an input on, like, okay, where can I go and uh, what's out there? But also... I mean, I've been working on these issues for the last seven years, eight years, maybe. 
And what I learned is like people who are a little further from the labor market, like need youth or um, recent immigrants, they often prefer the help of uh, employment service providers. So what I also could envision is, you know, uh, building tools with employment service providers and then that they, they can use those with their clients. So one of the biggest learnings for me was um, that we shouldn't build these tools uh, as researchers uh, alone. We should always build it with the end user together in collaboration, because um, what I've what I've actually learned over the last three four years is when you build a, a tool like this as a researcher, it's often used by other researchers because they're they're happy. You know, it uses the same jargon, they're, they're familiar with it, they're comfortable with it. But the intended target audience finds it really useless because it doesn't really speak to them. You know, it doesn't, and, and so you need to design it with the intended end user in mind. And the ideal is to also start already when you develop it, you develop it with them together, you know, so because you uh, can ensure that it meets their needs uh, in the best way. You know, and another concern that somebody might have about this is that, and I'll just stick with my example of a mom who's lost her job. Say she's suggested a job that's perfect for her, but it's three and a half hours away and she would either have to commute or pick up her family and move, which, you know, might, might not be feasible. So, you know, what do you do to ensure that, you know, it's not just a job, but it's a job that fits their lives and needs? Yeah, that becomes increasingly possible uh, to, uh, you can connect, uh, basically, once we have identified occupations that fit your abilities and skill sets, you can, you know, what a lot of tools do nowadays is they scrape online job postings in real time and by region and they can get pretty granular. So what you can then do is like, once you have this identified to say, okay, where in your region within, I don't know, you can probably say like within the 10 kilometer radius or 20 kilometer radius, where are jobs for you that, you know, that we identified that you could, that you could actually do where you, where the commute is not too onerous. I mean, that being said, there might not always be a guarantee that jobs will always be in your region. It depends probably where you live uh, in Canada. Unfortunately, I think there will be some regions where transition to a green economy will impact people in a way where they might have to relocate. But I think we can at least do the best possible where we say like we can identify what's the nearest to you in terms of these real job postings and, and then you can make an informed decision at least. So. so this tool as it stands seems like it could be really helpful for a lot of people looking for work, but it's also just kind of like a first draft, right? The, the tool also has a lot of potential. Um, could you discuss this potential? I mean, we, we just wanted to put it out there because uh, I, I was a little frustrated that, you know, there are some private companies that try to do something, you know, work with, with firms, but then you get into a lot of proprietary issues where they, you know, they, they don't reveal what algorithm they're using. They don't reveal with which classification system they're, they're working with. And, and in the worst case, you get an, a ton of tools out there that don't even speak to each other because they all use different, you know, some use very different de definitions of what even a skill is and, and so on. So I think that brings me back to if we want to help those who are the most vulnerable, it shouldn't be something where, you know, I want to develop a tool and, and become the next Bill Gates or something. I really want to help people navigate this transition and, and I want to help those who are the most vulnerable. And this means that those tools should be free to use. It should They should be transparent in which, which classifications they're using and ideally then also be, be able to, to be incorporated into other existing tools. So this is why I would say this is a call for you know, a public policy effort rather than giving it to, um, I don't know, Google and, 
and let them let them deal with this in a, in a private manner or something. So the, the potential that I see here is, you know, building a set of tools that, that fulfill these requirements of like, it's very clear, very transparent, uses the same methodology and the same classification system. And then ideally, because we, we still, what we still need in Canada is this uh, training database, like where we, you know, we recommend suitable training for you and connecting it, uh, what we propose in this paper, with a training database to say, like, uh, because then you, then you have all the features together to to cover what people need, actually, to be successful in, in navigating this. Well, Matthias, I just think this is the coolest project, and, and I really think that it has the potential to, to revolutionize how people look for work. So I just want to say thank you for doing this work uh, with the IRPP, and thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for inviting me. It was really fun. I want to say thanks again to Matthias Oshinsky for joining me on the podcast today and to Tan Nien for their work on this project. If you're interested in reading the full study, I really encourage you to check that out on our website at irpp.org. The title of that study is Finding the Right Job, a Skills-Based Approach to Career Planning. If you have enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please leave a rating or review wherever you listen. And if you know someone who might be interested, please send it to them. You can also contact us on all social media platforms under the handle IRPP, or you can send us an email at communications at IRPP.org. You can also send me a message on Twitter under the handle column F O'Sullivan. That's C-O-L-M-F O'Sullivan. Thanks for listening.